Okay. Uh, today, my guest is Professor Rain Kasia. Uh, I'll keep my introduction short to maximize our time with him. In the next 30 minutes or so, we'll talk about Wayne as a person, Professor Casio as a thought leader and an esteemed scholar, and finally as a mentor to many PhD students and junior faculty. Uh, for the sake of time, I'll skip many of his accomplishments and give you a very quick snapshot. Wayne Casio is a fellow of the National Academy of Human Resources, the Academy of Management, the American Psychological Association, and the Australian HR Institute. He has served as president of the Society for Industrial and Organization Psychology, chair of the Sherm Foundation Board of Directors, chair of the HR division of the Academy of Management, and is a member of the AOM's Board of Governors. Wayne has authored or edited 27 books on human resource management. He's a two-time winner of the Best Paper Award from uh, Academy of Management Executive. He received a Distinguished Career Award from the AOM, the Michael Luzi Human Resource Research Award, the Distinguished Scientific Contributions Award, and was named as one of the most influential scholars by the Journal of Management. Thank you, Wayne, for joining us. It's my pleasure, Ilgas. a pleasure to be here. First question, what did you want to become when you were a child? You know, uh, I grew up in New York, and my dad was a professional baseball player. Uh, for the New York Yankees. They didn't make any money at that time, but uh, but I wanted to be a professional baseball player and follow him. <laughs> uh, very good. I never did. I didn't have the skills to do it. Okay, okay. <laughs> That's what I wanted to do. <laughs> Interesting. Um, so can you pinpoint the earliest moment of awareness between uh, international and domestic? I think that's a really good question, and I'll, I'll, I'll give you the most honest answer I can, Ilgaz. And that was, I was a sophomore in high school, and it was during the 1962 Cuban Missile Crisis. And I remember I, was, I, I didn't study for a Latin test the next day because I didn't think there was going to be a world left. <laughs> I thought there'd be a nuclear annihilation. And I became aware of you know, that there's a there's a whole world out there that's very different from the one that I grew up in. So you took the makeup in that exam? <laughs> <laughs> I went in and did very poorly the next day on my <laughs> Latin exam. <laughs> uh, True story, though. <laughs> uh, I remember in, I, uh, in college, uh, there was the first uh, golf crisis, golf war, the first one, uh, with the father... Um, <clears throat> uh, Father Bush, and that was an econ exam, and I actually bet the farm on that one that there would be uh, <laughs> nothing, but I had to take the exam and didn't really do that. <laughs> so, <clears throat> how did you choose, uh, or how did you decide to become an academic, and uh, how did you choose specific area within academia, like international nature? Interesting question. Um, I was in the military. I was in the military and I was uh, browsing on the base library one day and I came across the Journal of Applied Psychology. And I started to read some of the articles and I said, boy, this is really interesting stuff, studying how, how people behave in organizations. When I get out, I'm gonna study all about organizations. Hmm. So I did and I, I went to the University of Rochester uh, and uh, I had a, a mentor, Bernard Bass, he wrote the handbook of leadership 
and uh, Bass had put together something called the IRGOM database, International Research Groups on Management, the IRGOM database. And what he did was uh, he had developed a, uh, we, we call them the PECs, the Program of Exercises. And these were um, simulations, little simulations that he would run with company executives in different countries around the world. And it was issues related to how do you deal with conflict? Um, how do you deal with uh, um, environmental issues? Uh, how do you deal with um, cross-cultural differences? And, uh, and every week uh, as graduate students at, at the University of Rochester, I was at the Management Research Center, um, we, would, we would receive by postal, by, by mail, um, the results of these programs of exercises, these 14 different exercises, and we would enter them into the computer as part of the international research groups on management. So from a very early experience, um, I was sensitized to international issues, and I published a number of articles early on in my career that were based on this international research groups on uh, the IRGOM database. Yes, very interesting. So what happened to the database now? Well, um, after I left, uh, uh, the, we had a dean at the, uh, at the University of Rochester who forced out all of the behavioral science professors. And uh, this was in the business school. And uh, so Bass took it with him to SUNY at Binghamton. And, uh, and I don't know what happened after that. Okay. Kind of lost okay. contact with them. That's fascinating, actually. I mean, oh yeah. Uh, something that is uh, not on your CV that people might find interesting about you. Uh, during the Vietnam War, there was a uh, officer candidate school at West Point, and uh, and I applied and, and got into it, and that's where I got my officer's commission uh, at West Point in uh, in 1970. That's interesting, actually. That's very interesting. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so why did you, uh, I mean, I, I understand that you would leave the service, uh, but a couple of my friends, when I was uh, getting my PhD at Ohio State, uh, they were going to, uh, Army gives you a great uh, context for doing experiments and surveys, you know. Well, why did you leave? Uh, that environment? Oh, well, I, I didn't really have a choice. Um, mm -hmm. And that was, I mean, I loved the army. I loved the military. Um, but um, uh, it was after, it was during the Vietnam War and after the Tet Offensive in 1969, uh, President Nixon uh, de-escalated the war. And I had an opportunity to get an early out from the military and go okay. back to graduate school on the GI Bill. Okay, And that's what okay. I did. If you could do it all over again, what's the second best alternative path for you? You know, uh, I really, I thought, I thought long and hard when I was coming out of graduate school, if I was going to go into academia or go into the business world, uh, working as an in-house um, work psychologist. And, uh, and I chose academia because my my mentor, Bernie Bass, who, by the way, was an Ohio State graduate, um, convinced me that, uh, boy, 
you can you can do lots of consulting, you can do research, you can do all the things you would like to do within a company, but have the autonomy and the freedom to do it from an academic post. And so I I took him up on that and uh, never left academia. <laughs> it's good advice, actually. I it was. Upside potential, always. Uh, regrets. Have you got any regrets? Uh, let's see. I would say, you know, I worked, you introduced me and you talked about the books that I had written and the positions I had occupied in my profession. I've always been a big believer in giving back service to the profession. Uh, but, you know, it, I don't know if it's a regret, but you wish you had, I wish I had spent more time with my family, uh, especially as, uh, you know, my my son was growing up. Uh, it's not like I was never there, but I probably always could have, could have done more. And, uh, you know, the tug of doing research and the tug of consulting and, and uh, professional service pulled me away uh, in many cases. Well, it's a common uh, I mean, all these great people uh, in the field basically uh, say I should have spent more time with the family and this is important one of the most important things well you can't change it once it's, once it's gone sure. it's gone you can't change that you know that's uh, for sure what did you learn from your biggest failures interesting question um uh I began writing a textbook in 19, my first textbook was in 1975. I began writing it. I didn't publish it until 19, actually 73 I began. I didn't publish it until 1978. And it was called Applied Psychology in Personnel Management at the time. Now it's called Applied Psychology in Talent Management. But uh, I began writing it and I was a completely unknown, young assistant professor, had no track record whatsoever. And at that time, you wrote textbooks either for the for the business school market or the psychology market. And I was trained as an industrial organizational psychologist. And I wanted to bridge both. I was trying to bridge these two markets. And uh, every time I'd send off a chapter I would, to a different publisher, I would get the same response. It says, technically, it looks good, but... We don't know where it's going to sell. What are you trying to write for? A business market or a psychology market? Hmm. And I, the chap, the book has 18 chapters because I was rejected eight, 17 times. <laughs> 18th one. On the 18th one, it was a subsidiary of Prentice Hall, Reston, who agreed to take a chance. And the book sold, I don't know, 50,000 copies in its first edition, and it sold in business schools and psychology departments and nursing schools and schools of public affairs. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I was reminded of the Winston Churchill quote, when you're going through hell, going. <laughs> <laughs> and I did for, for years, I went through hell, just kept getting rejected over and over again. What kept you motivated? What made you say, let me stick uh, to it a bit more? Uh, well, I, you know, I, I, I could say something uh, that, that wouldn't be true, but I think the most honest thing I can say is that I had written all these chapters and I said, I know there's value in this. Somebody is going to want to publish it. And I just kept going. Hmm. You know? So in other words, it was uh, sunk costs, if you will, sunk costs. I had spent so much time and effort uh, doing this. I said, 
I got to see it through. It's, it, somebody's going to want to read this. True. So uh, what are you most proud of? Well, I guess uh, personally, I'm most proud of uh, being married to a wonderful woman and, and my son as well, and who's done very well. And, uh, you know, professionally, I think um, for me, a highlight, there've been a number of highlights, but one of the, one of the big ones was um, by a vote of 90 countries in 2016, I won the uh, a, a Career Achievement Award, the, the PETIPA Lifetime Achievement Award from the World Federation of People Management Associations. And that was meaningful to me because it showed that the work I had been doing, the, the research I had been doing and the writing was having a practical impact in organizations around the world. And the fact that 90 countries voted on this um, really made, really was very, very rewarding to me. Congratulations again. Yeah, uh, thanks. Okay, uh, so let's talk about research a bit. Uh, how do you explain your research and the importance of uh, your work to people who don't read uh, our literature regularly? Yeah. You send it in a village, that's the village question. Yeah, for years, my parents were trying to understand what I did. <laughs> <laughs> parents and relatives. But, uh, you know, basically, I, I tell it, uh, everyday people, I just say, look, I my work focuses on how companies manage their people. And, and the research I do tries to find ways to make people uh, more efficient in the work that they do and make the work more rewarding to them. You know, and when they say, well, why is that important? I say things like um, organizations have lots of jobs, but as an individual, you have only one career. And it's important to make the most of that career. So anything I can do to help makes is all to the good. This is this is kind of my mission in life. After uh, all these years, looking back, uh, what would you say? Things that we have omitted or neglected in research, things that we should have covered more of. Oh boy, um, you know I I think uh, Ilgaz, one of the biggest mistakes not only in companies, but especially among researchers, because I know we're gonna talk a little bit about creativity and scholarship and things like that, is the failure to do environmental scanning. Environmental scanning, where I'm, I'm constantly looking at the, you know, the, the political, the technical, the social, the economic environment, and trying to identify what's the next big thing? You know, what are the trends that are happening now uh, that I should be looking at from a research perspective. Because so often we say, you know, research seems to follow practice sometimes by to 10 years. And, uh, and, and so one of the things that I've always tried to do in my research career was to get out in front of, of trends or developments that I could see happening and begin to do research on those. An example would be uh, uh, virtual teams. I wrote an article on it for the uh, Academy of Management Executive, I remember in 2002. And it was called about, it was called e-leadership and virtual teams. And I was very uh, interested in global virtual teams and how they get work done. 
today we we realize, boy, this is really an important trend because of of the pandemic and and less reduced mobility of people around the world. And uh, we need to know as much as we can about virtual teams. That's just one example. Mm -hmm. But but the the to get back to the question that you asked, I think one of the biggest mistakes is that people are looking more often backwards, what's been published, what's out there. And I try to look forward and say, what are the trends? You know, the, the political, the economic, the social trends happening, technical trends, technology that are happening now. And how does that affect uh, the kinds of questions that I ask about how organizations are gonna manage their people? So how does this process work for you, the creativity or when you're sitting idle and your mind is wandering in idle curiosity, you're thinking yeah. obviously something when you're walking your dog, when you're shopping, when you're gardening. <laughs> uh, how yeah. does the uh, process work? How do you come up with the uh, next big thing? Uh, obviously, you're 15, uh, 20 years idle of the curve. Yeah. Uh, well, you oh. know, I, I've... Uh, I'm just about to start work on the 13th edition of my uh, my McGraw-Hill textbook on uh, managing human resources. It's called Productivity, Quality of Work-Life Profits. And um, I've always felt that uh, I needed to be up to date, completely up to date on what's happening in, in different areas that I write about. And um, I'm just a, I guess you could say I'm a, I'm a I'm a voracious reader. You know, I read three or four newspapers a day. I subscribe to a number of business publications. Um, and I, as I look back on my own career, I didn't find a lot of other academics who were doing that. Some, you know, some for sure. Uh, but for me, um, I, I've always tried to look at the broader perspective of what's happening in the world. And how's that, you know, as I you asked, if I'm daydreaming or thinking about things, I often think about developments that are going on in the world and how do they affect the kinds of issues that I study, mm. you know? And I, I get out as much as I can and really try to interact with the people who are on the front lines. I started doing that in my research on downsizing many, many years ago when I had a grant from the Department of Labor in the U.S. to travel around and find the good news in employment downsizing. And I know that sounds unusual, the good news, but I'll just tell you really quickly, you know, it was, it, it came from interacting with literally hundreds of executives, hundreds of employees in different companies, multinational as well as domestic. And I found that very quickly, they sorted themselves into two camps as I started asking them, about how they see their people. Some saw their people as cost to be cut. You know, they're the biggest source of their operating costs. And, uh, and when you need to cut costs, here's a, it's kind of a plug-in mentality. Plug them in when you need them and pull the plug when you no longer need them. Yet there was a much smaller group, maybe 10% who said, no, how? Intel was a great example. And they, I was talking to executives there and he said, no, no, no. Um, we see our people as assets to be developed, not costs to be cut. And so our question is, how can we take the people we already have, 
and use them even more effectively, even better. And I wound up, you know, writing a book about that and doing research on downsizing for the next 20 years um, to look at the, the financial, the psychological, the economic consequences of employment downsizing. It was a long-term research project for me, not only in this country, but also overseas. True. True. Uh, so if you could look into a crystal ball and say the next five to 10 years of the field is going to be taking such and such direction, what yep. would it be? Yeah, I, you know what I see, uh, Ilgaz, um, you know, we look at all the shocks that have been happening, whether it's the Russian invasion of Ukraine or, or the, uh, um, the pandemic um, and, and so many other shocks. Um, these are going to be continual. This isn't uh, going to be unusual. This is, going, this is the new normal. I think one shock after another. Um, we're seeing supply chain shocks, for example. Um, and to me, one of the greatest challenges for company, particularly multinational companies, is going to be what I call geopolitical resilience. Geopolitical resilience, the ability to be agile, uh, to be able to, um, to keep going in the face of these shocks, be able to adjust to them rapidly. And that's what I mean by resilient, uh, to continue to adjust strategies uh, in the face of these shocks and, and the new competitive dynamics that we see. You know, I think this is gonna be huge. The, the pandemic has changed everything uh, about how we think, to me, everything, uh, how we think about how work gets done. Uh, we, we talked a little earlier about global mobility. You know, there was a huge pullback in expatriates uh, with, with multinationals sending people overseas during the pandemic. People are more concerned than ever before about health and safety issues. Safety was always an issue with things like terrorism or kidnapping for executives, uh, but now it's the health issues that are really critical. And so many expatriates are rethinking, do I wanna bring my family to a foreign land for three to four years, whatever it is, and uh, and companies are looking at alternative ways to get work done, and uh, and this is part of this resilience, this geopolitical resilience. And I think we're going to see lots of research coming uh, in the coming years on uh, on ways that companies can adjust to these shocks. True, true. Yeah. Maybe if uh, ten years ago, uh, when I was in Georgia State, the biggest uh, multinational or the one of the most important visible multinational is Coke. Coke. And they would send people over for two years, three years to uh, uh, overseas assignments. And they actually switched uh, very fast to two-week uh, uh, Short term. Yeah. Short term, right. Yeah. And then uh, after the uh, pandemic, uh, obviously everything switched. But right now, uh, other than the academicians were trying to find a location to just go and do something, uh, companies are not really picking up on that uh, global travel thing at all. It's uh, that's, right. that's right. Interesting. Uh, about the 
culture of IB scholarship. How how did it evolve over time from your experience, from your window? Uh, was this a fruitful evolution? Uh, are we losing something along the way? Uh, That's a really good question, Ilgas. And, uh, and I have an answer to it, uh, at least in terms of what I experienced in my own university. Um, when we originally began to hire um, IB scholars, there was great debate among the faculty of, is this a standalone discipline, a functional area, or are these individuals just looking at international issues in the broader context of their own functional expertise, whether it's marketing or finance or accounting or management? And over time, what I have seen is that, in, as I've observed the evolution over the last, well, 40 years, is IB has really come into its own as a legitimate professional discipline within business schools. And largely, I, I think it's a good thing. And, and I think it's a good thing because I'm a big believer in interdisciplinary research. And that's what I find so exciting at, uh, at the Academy of International Business is it is so interdisciplinary. Mm -hmm. I really, really like that, you know? Uh, Wayne, uh, about advice and mentoring, um... Uh, what is the one thing you wish you had known early on so that it would save you so much pain and agony? Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, and I, I can only speak personally, but uh, but for me, um, I, I wish that I had had a, a, a broader edge. I was educated in, in psychology. I got a, an undergraduate degree in psychology at Emory. I was I got a master's in experimental psychology and then ultimately a PhD in industrial organizational psychology. But I was always curious about economics, about marketing, accounting, finance. And I, I wish that I had taken more courses in those areas. I did do a sabbatical at Wharton in 1987-88, where I spent the whole year just taking corporate finance and investment theory courses because I wanted to know more about the area. I had taught statistics for 20 years so the quantitative part wasn't a problem, but I just didn't know the content. For me, that was such an eye-opener, so valuable to do that, because I found that I could interact more effectively with executives. You know, we could speak a common language, and uh, that was valuable for me. And I wish, you know, in giving advice to, uh, to younger scholars, doctoral students, whatever, uh, it would be if you're interested in international business, get... Uh, as broad an education as you possibly can. Many have MBAs and that's a good thing. I mean, this is an important point. Um, many years ago, maybe 15 years ago, uh, I read something Richard Taylor said. Richard Taylor said, oh, look at this guy, Matt Rubin at Berkeley. He's uh, translating econ into psychology and he's mm -hmm. opening up the field for the next hundred years. And then, uh, poof, it just uh, went, and he, he got a lot of awards. He got the medals and all that stuff. Sure. But uh, eventually, that translation was never accomplished. Why? Why don't the econ and the psychology uh, don't really mix uh, the way that Richard Taylor said it would, and Madhubin started to do? 
No, it takes people to make it happen, you know, guys. It takes people to make that happen. And you have to have the willingness to cooperate and, and the openness to learn from people in different disciplines. Most of my career, I've been doing interdisciplinary research, and it's hard. It's hard because when you come from different backgrounds, as you know, we speak a different language. You know, you speak a different language in economics than you do in social science. That's for sure. Speak a different language in IT than you do in accounting. And um, it's hard to do interdisciplinary research because it takes an openness on behalf of all of the participants to listen and try to learn and appreciate the perspectives of the other people that they're dealing with. And so, you know, in theory, it makes good sense to incorporate uh, economic considerations in psychology research and, and, and vice versa. Uh, in practice, it's hard to do. It, it's hard. Uh, what are some of the common mistakes that you see junior faculty and mid-career uh, mid uh, faculty do? So let's just break the question into two. First, early uh, career people and then the mid-career people. Yeah, I mean, one of, the things, one of the things that I think is so important for early career people to, to appreciate is that, and when we talk about, you're talking about academics, right? Early career mm -hmm. academics, sure. is that rejection is going to be part of your experience. You know, I look back at, I don't know how many articles I've, I've published, but, you know, I don't know, a couple of hundred. And of all of those, it was only one that I ever wrote that was accepted without any changes by an editor. You know, it wound up winning the best paper award that year. And it, it was in 1992, it was called Downsizing. What do we know? What have we learned? And uh, it was written out of passion more than anything else. But for the most part, you're gonna go through multiple rounds of revision. You're gonna have multiple rejections in the course of your career. We've often said, you gotta be a thick skin. Uh, to be an academic. You talk to any successful academic and behind all of that is what did you learn from failure? You know, what did you learn from the times you got rejected and manuscripts you thought were first rate, you thought, but others didn't see it that way. And it's so important because I have seen this over and over again. And I think it started as a graduate student. I happened to be walking by one day um, <clears throat> an open uh, uh, classroom where a, uh, a doctoral student was going through uh, his final orals, final oral exams. And the, the, the people that were asking him questions were just brutal, just brutal. And um, the guy decided to get out of academics and, and never pursue an academic career again. And I mean, that was a very sad thing. <laughs> but what it said to, he actually became a comedian, you're laughing. <laughs> but, <laughs> but what it said to me is, you know, you've got to have a thick skin to be in this business. And the sooner you learn that, that even the most successful scholars in our field have had to deal with rejection multiple times in their careers. You know, it, it, and that's why I, I cited that Winston Churchill quote about if, if you're going through hell, keep going. <laughs> because you've got to have that perseverance. You've got to have that drive uh, if you're going to be successful and ultimately have a manuscript see the light of day. You know, and sometimes, it as you know, it takes years 
to get a really, my last AMJ, which was last year, uh, it took about three and a half years for that to actually be published, but it was interdisciplinary research. Mm -hmm. And I was doing it with a couple of finance professors and it's tough, it's hard. And uh, it's a real slog to get through that reviewing process, as you know. And graduate students need to understand that. You need to understand that, that it's not gonna be easy to get ahead. And nobody who's ever turned out to be very successful has done it without any failures along the way. So, uh, even after you develop calluses on your rhino skin, uh, the first <laughs> rejection and the last rejection equally are- uh, Painful. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The, the pain doesn't go away. It's just uh, maybe coping mechanisms are developed better. Um, That's interesting uh, you say that because I remember talking to one scholar. She's no longer publishing. I haven't seen her name in years, but she said every time I get a rejection, I have to do retail therapy. <laughs> <laughs> what do you do? Do you, do you show your uh, review letter to your wife? Uh, what? No, who, I who actually do you share it with. Yeah, no, actually, I, I, I have to put it aside. It, it's so emotionally draining to read these things. I actually have to put it aside for a few days, sometimes a few weeks, and then I'll come back to it. And I'll, I'll try to look at, well, did they say anything good about this manuscript? You know? <laughs> did they say anything good? Try to pull some of that out. But, but for me personally, I couldn't just open up the letter and, and read it all at once. I would tend to, to put it aside you know, for a while till I settled down. Okay, then I'm normal too. Then, then this is this is good news. <laughs> you uh, absolutely are. <laughs> okay, uh, last question. What's the question that I should have asked you about heaven? You know, a lot of people are asking me, Ilgaz. I I uh, I technically retired from my university in 2020, and they they keep saying, "What's next? You know, what's mm -hmm. next for you?" And and my answer is very simple, and that is, I've spent my whole life learning how to write write well, how to do research, and cultivating wonderful colleagues in the academy that I can work with. Why would I ever stop now? Now that you learned how to write? Yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> I finally figured it out. Why would I stop now? And I find I'm busier now than I was when I was a faculty member. <laughs> True. Um... This was delightful. Thank you so much, Wayne, uh, for your time. I learned a lot. I'm sure the audience will agree with me. Thank you. Well, Il guys, I thought your questions were fantastic. Very thoughtful and thought-provoking. Thanks so much. It's been great. And I hope we get a chance to meet at another convention. Yes, thank you. Take okay. care. Bye for now. Bye-bye.